This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Time, time, time. What has become of me and what has become of 2018? We've almost got another year under our belt. And as we've done for the past dozen and a half years or so, uh, we like to look back at what has just transpired. But this year, I think, is the most shocking of any we've tried to chronicle because, because of the fact that it also marks the 50th anniversary of the year 19. 19- 1968 and the 100th anniversary of 1918. Since this correspondent can remember 1968 rather vividly, it does give me a bit of pause to know that from this point forward, 1968 is closer to 1918 than we will be to 1968. That's just how it works. But I imagine a lot of you are finding that a little unsettling if you're of a certain age. So uh, during today's show, we're going to make some passing mention, not just of this year and things that are in the news as the year winds to an end, but also a couple of looks back, 50 and 100 years. Now, something that took place 50 years ago this past week on Christmas Day was the rather dramatic, well, not rather, extremely dramatic reading of the Apollo 8 astronauts from the Bible. I don't think you have to be a religious person, as I am not particularly, to have been moved by hearing those words of the book of Genesis while outside the window of the spacecraft you could see the moon rolling below. And it was, of course, on that mission that what many consider to be the most famous picture ever taken was secured by Bill Anders of the crew. I am referring, of course, to the celebrated Earthrise over the surface of the moon. Although it's, it's hard to imagine now, the fact of the matter is, there was no such picture until the astronauts snapped one and brought it home to get developed. This event is chronicled in the current edition of New Scientist magazine. To quote from New Scientist, It came as no surprise, since it was already in the mission plan, But the astonished cries of the astronauts were spontaneous. On 24 December 1968, Apollo 8 completed the first circumnavigation of the moon by humans. As it emerged from the far side, Earth crept over the lunar horizon. It was the first time anybody had seen an Earth rise. Astronaut William Anders picked up his camera and took a photograph. It is generally thought of as the first photograph of Earth taken from the moon, but it isn't. Moments before, Anders Commander Frank Borman had taken a black-and-white shot, and two years earlier, the Lunar Orbiter 1 probe had sent back two rather blurry images. But what is now known as Earthrise was in color, the blue of our planet's oceans, in clear contrast to the blackness of space and the barren gray surface of the moon. When the film was returned to Earth and developed, it was a sensation. By early 1969, the photograph was just about everywhere, from newspaper color supplements to TV news bulletins to T-shirts. Outgoing U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson sent all world leaders a copy as he left office, both as a political stunt, but also 
to show them that this is all we have, war, disputes, and politics notwithstanding. Earthrise was chosen as the symbol for the first World Earth Day in April 1970, and its influence has grown steadily. I was sort of amused by looking at the transcript of um, what took place as the astronauts were fumbling for their cameras, and went something like this. Bill Anders, oh my God, look at that picture over there. There's the Earth coming up. Wow, is that pretty? Frank Borman, hey, don't take that. That's not in the schedule. <laughs> and I have to pause right there. Anybody heard Frank Borman on a, I, I forget what show it was a few months back, uh, talking about how, uh, you know, he only went to the moon because it was it's important that we beat the Russians. In terms of a life-changing event or looking out into space and being very spiritual, nah. The moon, eh, pretty bleak, pretty barren. Frank wasn't impressed. And maybe if he'd had his way, we wouldn't even have this picture. The transcript describes shutter click. I'm not sure whether that was Borman taking his picture. I, it might have been. At any rate, it goes on. Anders, you got a color film, Jim? Hand me a roll of color film, quick, would you? Jim Lovell, oh, man, that's great. Anders, hurry, Lovell, where is it? Anders, quick, Lovell, down here. Anders, just grab me a color, a color exterior. Hurry up, got one? Lovell, yeah, I'm looking for one. C-368, Anders, anything, quick, Lovell, here. Anders, well, I think we missed it. Lovell, hey, I got it right here. It's in this hatch window. Anders, let me get out this one. It's a lot clearer. Lovell, I got it framed. It's very clear right here. Shutter click. Lovell, got it. Anders, yep. Lovell, take several. Take several of them. Here, give it to me. Anders, wait a minute. Just let me get the right setting here now. Just just calm down. Lovell, take. Anders, calm down, Lovell. Lovell, well, I got it right. Oh, that's a beautiful shot. 250 at F11. Shutter click. Anders, okay. Lovell, now vary the exposure a little bit. Anders, I did. I took two of them here. Lovell, you sure you got it now? Anders, yeah, we got it. Well, it'll come up again, I think. In fact, and I just looked this up uh, on Google, they did orbit the moon 10 times. So they did actually get 10 Earth rises on, uh, during the time that they were orbiting our, our neighbor in space. Actually, one wonders if the celebrated Earthrise picture was on that first orbit or on subsequent shots. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. It's just, it's a, it is a, uh, a haunting and beautiful piece of space art that really does show us, you know, where, where it's all happening, right here on this blue planet. And noodling around on the web a couple days ago, I, I was noticing one little blurb posted on, I guess it was YouTube, by a guy who decided to show how big space really was. And I sort of cracked up because I had done pretty much identical calculations 25 years ago. Unlike the videographer, I didn't go out uh, with a camera to show the audience of what this all looked like. What surprised me was that the object he chose to represent, in this case, the sun, we're talking in this case, interstellar distances. He chose a P seven millimeters across. When I did my math, I wound up using a little P-sized sphere, seven millimeters across. Now, at this scale, the solar system shrinks down to where Pluto is like on the 30-yard line, something like that. But this guy was trying to illustrate how difficult it is to travel to Alpha Centauri, which at this scale would represent a slightly larger P, 208 kilometers, or about 130 miles away. Meaning that if our sun was a P on the front steps of the Capitol building in Sacramento, You'd find Alpha Centauri uh, somewhere around, I don't know, the Chowchilla exit off of I-99. And this, folks, is why interstellar travel is 
a bit problematic. For those of you interested in rocketry, and I hope you all are, we would like to point out that you uh, may want to go out Sunday night, December 30th, and look to the southwest. That's when they rescheduled this rocket launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base. That should be visible pretty much everywhere in California. We hope, A, that they get the rocket off without a hitch, and that, B, everybody gets to see it. Could be very cool. We also want to do a drum roll for the impending flyby of the New Horizons mission past what they've labeled Ultima Thule out there on the Kuiper Belt past Pluto. We Earth people have never gotten a close-up look at a small Kuiper Belt object before. This could be quite fresh and interesting. Well, maybe not to Frank Borman. And we expect uh, as 2019 begins and New Horizons continues its flight out to the edge of the solar system, that this debate may be rekindled as to whether we should consider Pluto a planet or not. Now, Mike Brown, the man who pretty much killed off Pluto, uh, decided that we couldn't really call Pluto a planet if he discovered another object which he thought really didn't deserve to be called a planet. That was Eris. Eris is out considerably farther than Pluto, but is of a similar size. In fact, preliminary indications were that it was a little bit bigger than Pluto. It turns out that it's just a hair smaller than Pluto in diameter. But, as Mike Brown likes to point out, we're able to estimate its mass, and it turns out that it's the size of Pluto, plus if you threw in every object in the asteroid belt, well, then you'd have something the size of Eris. The debate will go on. And, in fact, uh, that lively scientific discussion was one of a few mentioned in the end-of-year issue of New Scientist. The article was titled, Oh, No, It Isn't! The first subject for debate was, an asteroid killed the dinosaurs, with the subheadline, oh no it didn't. We're, we're pretty much uh, down with the notion of uh, Louis Alvarez and his son Walter Alvarez, that yes, this really is the main explanation for the demise of the dinosaurs. But there are some people who point out that uh, the Deccan traps in India, this huge, unbelievably huge eruption of lava through the Earth's crust, took place at almost the same time. So much so that many people are convinced that it was the asteroid hitting one side of the Earth, put the shock waves all the way around the planet, to which when they converged on the other side, ruptured the crust and led to the Deccan traps. Could be. We're sure that as science marches on, they'll eventually, you know, figure that one out. There are a couple mentioned here that we're pretty sure they may never figure out. One of the other items in this piece was string theory works. <laughs> With the subheadline, oh no, it doesn't. They mentioned Peter White unusual among scientists because he's known not for proposing an idea but for opposing one. Since 2002, this mathematical physicist at Columbia has been the brains behind the blog Not Even Wrong. The subject is string theory, which proposes that fundamental particles of nature are not particles at all but little rolled up balls of string. These exist in a universe of at least 10 dimensions, some of which also are rolled up too tightly for us to see. What's more, our cosmos is one of perhaps a multiverse of 10 to the 500th power universes, each slightly different from the last. Noted new scientist in its British fashion, that might sound ropey to an untrained ear, but for many physicists, string theory remains the most reasonable way to unite our conflicting pictures of reality under one umbrella. Alternatively, it's just ropey. Says Walt, it never seemed promising to me. I thought somebody should explain this isn't really working out how it was supposed to. Not only has the theory failed, 
in 50-odd years to produce any testable prediction, but machines such as the Large Hadron Collider have failed to turn up any evidence for anything that might indicate it is pointing even remotely in the right direction. So, not even wrong. On this one, Radio Parallax has to extend its sympathies to Peter White. We do love the quote from Richard Feynman, who sadly we were never able to interview, although we did have a nice chat with his daughter on this program about a, a collection of the letters of Richard Feynman. We refer you to our archives to, to hear that if you missed it on the first go. But Feynman was fond of saying, string theory, the string theorists don't make predictions, they make excuses. And I think my favorite item from this article has to be, I have the proof, <laughs> parentheses, oh no you don't, <laughs> referring to the ABC conjecture which, no, I'm sorry to say I can't even tell you what that is, but it's apparently a big deal to mathematicians. And so happens that back in 2012, mathematician Sinichi Mochizuki of Kyoto University claimed that he had a proof of this problem. New scientists have followed this issue over the years, and they've noted that, um, <laughs> well, there's been an increasingly fraught attempt by mathematicians to verify Mochizuki's dense 500-page proof without really explaining what it is or what the conjecture involves, and they said that's because we can't. No one can. Now, luckily for Mochizuchi, he has a cheerleader, in this case Ivan Frasenko of the University of Nottingham in the UK, and he said, well, perhaps 15 people in the world have mastered the basics of intra-universal technomuller theory, which is the framework for Mochizuchi, and according to him, no one who knows enough about the subject to possibly comment has ever found anything to object to. The objectors, if you're keeping score, include Peter Schulze, a Fields medalist and one of the rising stars of mathematics. The proof has still made the grade of being published in a journal, despite Mochizuchi's publishing a summary in 2017. The summary ran to 300 pages. Peter Schulze uh, spent a week studying this proof earlier this year, and, and he claims he's found an error there and came to the conclusion that there is no proof. In response, Ivan Frizenko said, well, they haven't spent enough time studying the proof. Evidently, a week is not nearly enough time. And in a parallel story that was not part of this article, but is, you know, perhaps of grave import and worthy of discussion, we have this. Also early this year, in September of this year, uh, mathematicians were apparently trying to evaluate whether the Riemann hypothesis has been solved. By the way, if I do make a mess of this, and you know a great deal more about this, my dear listener, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. But I'm doing the best I can. Evidently, last September in Heidelberg, Germany, retired mathematician Michael Atia delivered what he claimed was a proof of the Riemann hypothesis. This is a challenge that has eluded his peers for nearly 160 years. Atia himself said, Nobody believes any proof of the Riemann hypothesis because it is so difficult. Nobody's proved it. So why should anybody prove it now? Unless, of course, you have a totally new idea, which evidently he thinks he does. New Scientist explains that the Riemann hypothesis is intimately connected to the distribution of prime numbers. If the hypothesis is proven to be correct, mathematicians would be armed with a map to the location of all prime numbers, a breakthrough with far-reaching repercussions in the field since our computer security is dependent upon prime numbers. Well, we'll just have to see how that one turns out. I don't, I don't know that this proof is going to uh, allow them to crack 
computer security systems. But there is something else out that we need to worry about that they say may. I am referring, of course, to quantum computing. The New York Times reported uh, earlier this month that the largest technology companies are still working to actually build the first quantum computer. And in the meantime, they're focusing on encryption that relies on the same concepts from the world of physics. Why, asked the article? Well, quantum computers use the properties of subatomic level particles to perform calculations at speeds many orders of magnitude faster than today's machines. That raw computing power could break the encryption that protects digital information, putting at risk everything from the billions of dollars spent on e-commerce to national security secrets stored in government databases. Does it occur to anybody that, man, this is probably a bad idea? I mean, I just don't want, you know, some hacker in Macedonia to be able to access, you know, the launch codes for nuclear weapons. Of course, they're pointing out that, well, if we had quantum encryption, which also uses quantum properties, then that too could allow us to then encode something where it couldn't be broken. Arguing against this concern is a piece by Mikhail Dyakonov, which you can find on the internet, titled The Case Against Quantum Computing. The subheadline of this piece says that the proposed strategy relies on manipulating with high precision an unimaginably huge number of variables. To quote a bit from that piece, quantum computing is all the rage. It seems like hardly a day goes by without some news outlet describing the extraordinary things this technology promises. Most commentators forget or just gloss over the fact that people have been working on quantum computing for decades and without any practical results to show for it. Now, this article gets a little too, too technical for me, frankly, but let me quote the following. How is information processed in such a machine? That's done by applying certain kinds of transformations dubbed quantum gates that change, that change these parameters in a precise and controlled manner. Experts estimate that the number of qubits needed for a useful quantum computer, one that can compete with your laptop in solving certain kinds of interesting problems, is between 1,000 and 100,000. The number of continuous parameters describing the state of such a useful quantum computer at any given moment must be at least 2 to the 1,000th power, which is to say about 10 to the 300th power. That's a very big number indeed. How big? Well, a useful quantum computer needs to process a set of continuous parameters that is larger than the number of subatomic particles in the observable universe. The author notes that at this point in a description of a possible future technology, a hard-headed engineer loses interest. But let's continue. He notes, it's absolutely unimaginable how to keep errors under control with power continuous parameters that must be processed by a useful quantum computer. Yet, quantum computing theorists have succeeded in convincing the general public that it is feasible. Indeed, they claim that something called the threshold theorem proves it can be done. Forwarding ahead, he notes that a huge amount of scholarly literature that's been generated about quantum computing is notably light on experimental studies describing actual hardware. Anyway, I'm not going to belabor this talk of qubits and how to calculate all this, but suffice it to say that there are some doubters. But let's assume we do succeed, or scientists are able to succeed and develop actual quantum computers. Would this not bring civilization to a halt? At least tech-based civilization. I happened to catch a program on television recently that was talking about, I guess, what they described as the cobra effect, which I guess in my mind is a variation of the law of unintended consequences. 
and mentioned how in India, back in the 19th century, the British felt that there were too many cobras near the cities of India. This was causing a problem, being they're a very dangerous venomous snake. So they offered a bounty for the population to bring in cobras. Some enterprising Indians then discovered that it was pretty easy to breed cobras, at which point you could bring in a whole family and collect a big old bounty. When the British got wind of this, they stopped paying the bounties, and of course, the guys then let all the snakes go. So in the end, there were more cobras than ever before. It seems to me that technology keeps sticking us in these kinds of ruts. Case in point, up in Northern California, there's a grove of very large redwood trees. It doesn't include the tallest tree that we know of, but it includes many of the giants that are right up there among the tallest and biggest. Unfortunately, some jackass from Oregon, after stumbling upon this grove, hiking through the woods, posted its coordinates on the internet. So while it used to be that this grove was, uh, you know, an undisturbed part of an old growth forest, it's now a tourist attraction. Paths are being worn through the ferns. The soil is being packed down. And then, of course, there's the collections of toilet paper where various visitors have relieved themselves. Thankfully, some folks at the Save the Redwoods League are trying to do something about this, and the solution they were coming up with is elevated walkways. And they're trying to raise funds for this. They're evidently at about 230000 at the moment. Supposedly, any donations that are raised by the end of this month will be matched by donations from Josie Merck. Uh, that's, she's the daughter of George Merck, former president of the pharmaceutical giant Merck, and a donor to the Save the Redwoods League until his death back in 1984. And thanks to the popularity of something appearing on the Internet, uh, I think we mentioned a while back the Bixby Bridge down on Highway 1 has become, well, a jammed-up tourist attraction as people pull over to take a photograph of themselves with the bridge in the background. Locals are pretty unhappy about this as, you know, a parked food truck goes down there to get a line of customers. Cars attempt U-turns on Highway 1. Tourists perch out on rocks, leaning back to take selfies. It's been described during holidays and weekends as resembling a Safeway parking lot. And I think we have the Internet to blame for the uh, ridiculous popularity of folks running up and down Mission Peak in Fremont. This picturesque summit is pretty much the symbol of the city of Fremont. But hiking up it is such a fad now that the hundreds of visitors that go up every day, seemingly to the top of the peak, are wearing holes in the sides of the mountain. I hope this fad passes, but I got a feeling it won't. I did point out this peak while uh, sitting in the Oakland Coliseum some months back. From our position, it was easily visible, which allows me to segue into uh, what was probably the final football game that will ever be played in Oakland Coliseum this past Monday night. The Oakland Traders defeated the Denver Broncos. The Raiders are again moving away from Oakland. They left for Los Angeles, as you may recall, back in the 80s. But when they couldn't make enough money playing in the Los Angeles Coliseum, they decided they'd get a better deal by coming back to Oakland and shaking down the city, which they did very thoroughly. We've talked quite a bit in this program about how team owners are able to uh, rip off municipalities by holding them hostage to uh, their demands on stadium improvements or just building stadiums anew. But um, the late Al Davis and currently his son Mark really, I think, wrote the chapter on this. But currently, in response to the city saying it's going to sue the Raiders, the Raiders 
management, in this case, I guess, Mark Davis and company, said, oh, yeah, well, then we're not going to play in the Coliseum this next year. Unfortunately for them, their stadium in in Vegas ain't ready yet. So where are they going to play next year? Who knows? They're talking about sharing Levi Stadium. And I hope the 49ers and the people at Levi Stadium don't don't let them do this. Anyway, goodbye to the Oakland Raiders. uh, And if you need anybody to help you pack, let us know. Anybody going to take some bets on whether whether 10 years from now they're going to be saying, well, this Vegas thing didn't work out. Hello, Oakland. All right, and and some follow-up to our story about uh, China and its middle class and the potential threat that represents to America and the world. Um, There's this item from Bloomberg.com. 50 million apartments and houses, which is 22% of China's urban dwellings, are sitting empty. Well over half of real estate purchases in China are now second and third homes, the result of a housing bubble that may be a ticking time bomb. Oh, and as for the stock market adjustment that took place this past month, which apparently was pretty bad uh, bad news for Wall Street, well, it probably ain't going to get better in 2019. I hope your money's safe. This surely is not being helped by the President of the United States acting like a lunatic. Although I had to laugh at the news story that came out on December 4th under the headline, President Complains About Cost of Arms Race. I think we mentioned on last week's program that the President calls this crazy. And it is. But he doesn't seem to get that all this talk about rebuilding our military is probably not going to help this. I believe we reported some months back that uh, a federal agency has decided that, well, melting sea ice isn't going to endanger walruses. So we need not worry about that or them. I assume in a parallel fashion, the president took a look at the situation in Syria and said, hey, let's declare victory and come home. I think we said in this program some years back that doing that in Iraq might not have been a bad idea. A lot of us thought back in the early 70s that doing that in Vietnam would have definitely been a good idea. But I think we better leave it there. we got lots more in our second half. Uh, Please stick around. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stop. 